Um, but I grew up in St. Catharines, a small city uh, on the eastern part of the country. And I, I, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my mom and dad were both Christian. Uh, and I knew church very well as a youngster growing up. Uh, I, I'm sure in a room like this, some of you might be able to relate. I, I went to church on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and then even during the week, there was a Wednesday service that I attended with my mom and dad, all of us. You know, I have three sisters, so we all sort of tromped along to uh, church there. And then on Friday, also, we, there was some service for you know, middle school and uh, high school, and I was there too. So I knew church very well. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I was a Christian. Uh, I remember in early high school, uh, my mom and dad were visiting a church. And uh, at this church, uh, one of the students there invited me to go to a youth group. And I said yes. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation in which you commit to go to something only to realize 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or an hour after you've committed to do that, that you realize you didn't actually want to go to that thing that you said yes to. Has it ever happened to you? I'll never forget, you know, riding home from church that Sunday morning with my mom and dad and all of a sudden realizing I've been duped. I'm going to this youth group and I actually don't want to go to that youth group. So anyway, fast forward, I committed to going to it, so I went along to this youth group and by, you know, every description really, uh, it was the same as every other youth group I'd been to. You know, lots of uh, games, we had some food and then songs and then we listened to a guy speak. But I'll never forget being in the room that night with all these high school students. We were packed into this chapel room and we were singing songs and it struck me as I looked across the room. Some of the students in that room I knew from my high school and I brought along a few friends who were not Christian. And I looked at all these students and they were singing to God. And what I mean by that is they were singing as if God was in the room. And I had been to church loads of times. I knew, all, I knew how to do church. But when I sang, sang about God, I was just doing that. I was singing about him. I wasn't singing to him. Now, here's the thing. To sing to God, there's a relational component to that. You can sing about God, but that's not the same as singing to him. And all of a sudden, as I looked across that room, I saw that here were these guys who were singing to God as if he was really in the room. And I think the most apt way in which I can describe that moment is to say that God was in the room. And I encountered him for the first time in that moment. I moved from a place, if you will, from seeing God as something to be figured out to a God who can now be understood as a person, a person to be known. From understanding God as something to be figured out to a person who can be known. And this evening, I wanna talk to you about that God. I want to talk to you about the Christian God and what makes him so unique. What is so different about the Christian God? And to do that, I want to look at a passage of scripture. Now, it, uh, it's, it's a story found in Luke in the New Testament. Uh, for those of you who are uh, not Christian uh, or maybe even new to church, uh, Luke is one of the biographical accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. Uh, there are four biographical accounts of Jesus in the Bible. And Luke is just one eyewitness account. So if you have your Bibles, you can look it up. It's a short story I'm going to read to you, so you don't, know, don't need to have your Bibles. But if you have it, I'm reading from Luke. And the chapter is the fifth one. Luke chapter 5. Verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the word of God, he, that's Jesus again, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. 
and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, what might a story like that have to say to the theme at hand this evening? What makes the Christian God so unique? What is so different about the Christian God? Well, let me start by saying a couple things. First is this, fundamental to the Christian belief, the Christian faith, is the understanding that Jesus Christ is God. He's God in the flesh. As Paul, another writer, uh, uh, actually wrote many books in the New Testament, he said at one point in the book of Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So in other words, if, if we want to understand who the Christian God is, if you get to Jesus, you get to the Christian God. You understand something, if not more than just something, of who the Christian God is. And so by looking at the story, I, want, I think we can draw, I want to draw different observations that answer this question. What makes the Christian God so unique? If you get Jesus, you get the Christian God. If you understand Jesus, you understand the Christian God. Now, this story that I read actually is very rich. There's a richness to this passage. But like any other story, if you, if you miss the context, you miss the meaning. You miss the profundity of the story if you miss the context. So let me just spend just a brief moment here explaining the context of the story. The story is this. Jesus is teaching a crowd of people on a beach. It's, uh, it's a smelly landing area. And when I was looking at this, uh, at this story, one of the guys I looked to, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, it, it, uh, a lot of my study was pulled from a guy named Ken Bailey, who sadly passed away, but he did extensive and really significant research on the Middle Eastern understanding, the cultural understanding of these stories. But in my studies, I saw that, look, first of all, what's interesting is Jesus is not teaching in a holy place. He's not teaching in a synagogue or a temple. He's on a beach. And not only a beach, it's a smelly beach because all these guys are emptying their nets. But it's not only smelly, he's also around a bunch of fishermen who are disgruntled because they just had a night of fishing in which they caught no fish. So if you can imagine, Jesus is teaching this crowd of people. He's around grumpy fishermen, and it's a smelly place. It's interesting because he's a rabbi, remember? I mean, in the context, Jesus was understood as a rabbi. But here he is teaching a crowd of people who is increasing and they're coming towards him. So then he looks to Peter, one of his friends, and he asks Peter effectively to use his boat as a lectern. He wants to sit down and teach from Peter's boat. And that's why Jesus says, put out a little from the land. So he uses Peter's boat to teach. Uh, But what's interesting is then he gives advice 
to Peter as to how to fish. He says, put your nets out into the deep. Now let's just stop there for a moment. To get into the context and feel the, the tension and the mystery and the strangeness of what this would be like for Peter, you have to understand, first of all, Peter is the fisherman, right? I mean, he, he, this is what he does, this is his bread and butter. He makes money off how many fish he catches. Every day, whatever Peter would catch, he would go down to the market and be selling the fish, and whatever he got, that was his income. But Jesus is the rabbi telling the fishermen how to fish. So if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, look, Jesus, you just said, you know, put your nets on the deep. Look, I don't, Jesus, I don't tell you how to do holy stuff, okay? I don't tell you how to do the teaching. You do that. I don't tell you. I just listen to you. I'm the fisherman. This is what I do. Let me do what I do. So that's part of why, G, why Peter says, Master, we toiled all night. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Here's a very interesting point. Back then, in the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, and still today, just from um, studying this passage in the cultural understanding, fish out there in Lake, uh, Lake Gennesaret and the Sea of Galilee, they're not actually out in the deep. So when Jesus says, put your nets on the deep, that's not actually where the fish are. The fish are actually near the shore, the fresh water. But also, they're not out during the day. During the day, they're hiding under the rocks. It's at nighttime when the fish are out and they're not out in the deep, they're near the shore. That's why these guys were fishing at nighttime, but also the nets that Peter and his colleagues would have been using were specifically nets for night fishing. They're called like trammel nets. They're like a linen type of net. So that's part, that's again why Jesus is looking, or why Peter looks to Jesus, and he says, Master, we've toiled all night. But Peter doesn't stop there. He then says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, let me just stop there for a moment and uh, make a few observations. I'll come back to that context in a moment. What does this story have to say about the Christian God? I want to suggest to you, first, it tells us something that actually might be missed, is that the Christian God speaks. Isn't it interesting that Jesus actually speaks? He, you know, he, he engages Peter in conversation. He says just basic things like, you know, Peter, put a, put a, a little from the land. Then he says, he, he gives Peter advice as to how to fish. But that can often be missed because if Jesus is God, it tells us something of who God is and the Christian God is one who speaks. Now this, again, is a point that is made throughout the whole of Scripture. It's not just something new that comes in the New Testament. It's something all throughout, from Old Testament to New Testament. The idea of Israel's God, who is revealed to us in Jesus Christ, is one who speaks. You know, the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 135, he, he, he compares Israel's God to the nation's idols, and he writes this, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. You see, in, in the ancient Near Eastern world, many people worshiped different things, idols, gods, but what the psalmist here is saying is, Israel's God, again, revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, real person, first century Palestine, is one who speaks, he lives. And that in and of itself is a distinguishing factor. You know, when I was growing up, 
one of my heroes was a guy named Joe Carter. Now, Joe Carter, uh, some of you may know, he, back in the day, like this is going back now, but in the 1990s, he was the franchise player for the Toronto Blue Jays, the face of the franchise. I mean, if there was a guy who you wanted to come to home plate when you were in a pinch, you wanted Joe Carter there. And and for those of you who are uh, baseball fans, uh, and for those of you who are not, just give me a couple minutes here, okay? In 1992, 1993, they win the World Series. In 1992, Joe Carter is the guy who catches the last out. In 1993, Joe Carter is the guy who hits the walk-off home run to win it all. So this is, I mean, he's just the bomb. He's like, Joe Carter is flat out the bomb. Now, in both those years, I was able uh, to go with my cousins and aunt and uncle. We went down to Florida to see spring training, see the Blue Jays play. the spring training, if you've ever been there, you actually have the opportunity to talk to the players, you know, before the game or after the game. It's pretty, you know, it's very informal. They're doing workouts, and on the way, they'll come and sign autographs, and, you know, you can take a photo with them. So at the end of each day that we would see the Blue Jays play, me and my cousin would gather around in a circle back at our hotel, and we'd swap stories. And we'd tell, the, tell each other, like, whose autograph we got, and who, you know, whose photograph we got, and, you know, who, you know did you talk to any players today? Well, one day... I was able to talk to Joe Carter. And it's a day I will never forget. So I come back with my cousins, and we're just, you know, you know handing out these baseball cards with autographs on them and swapping stories, and then I, uh, I uh, do one of these. <clears throat> and, everyone's, and everyone looks at me, and I, I said, uh, I spoke to Joe Carter today. And my cousin looks at me with wide eyes. He says, you talked to Joe Carter today? And I said, yeah, I talked to Joe Carter. And he said, well, what did he say? And I said, he said, how are you doing? (laughs) And my cousin looked back to me and he said, and what did you say? (laughs) And I said, I said good. (laughs) And my cousin paused and he looked at me. He said, is, so is that, that it? I said, yes! <laughs> now, in that 15-second exchange, that was extremely superficial, at best. I was over the moon with excitement. But think about that. It was 15 seconds of, hey, how are you doing? Good. The end. But just think, the Christian God the one who is transcendent. The scriptures tell us that he holds all things together. Is a God who's come close, who speaks to you, and when he speaks to you, it's profoundly personal. When Jesus speaks to Peter, it actually, truly, I mean, excuse the cliche, it changes his life, it truly does. It changes his whole job. I mean, we see at the very end, the narrator tells us, Peter leaves everything and follows Jesus. It was truly just a watershed moment for Peter. It changed his life. Do you know this voice? The Christian God is one who speaks. But more than that, the Christian God pursues us. The Christian God pursues you. Isn't it interesting in the story with Peter, Jesus is the one who initiates. 
He's the one who engages Peter in conversation. Now, I can imagine Peter being a bit reluctant. He's a bit grumpy. He just had you know, a night in which he caught no fish. Jesus is the one who actually engages him in conversation. He comes after Peter. But again, this picks up on a meta-narrative. The grand story of Scripture, the big story of Christianity is the story of a God who comes after us. Paul, speaking in Romans, speaking to the churches in Rome, says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The story of Christianity is not a story of us finally just getting something right and then God intervening. Us finally, you know, getting smart enough or doing something well and then God comes and rescues us. No, the story is of God coming to us, coming to us while we were broken, messed up. He comes to you. Do you know that God? Do you know this God who comes after you? Now, many people have spoken of this, written about it, but a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis, many of you, I'm sure, know who C.S. Lewis is. C.S. Lewis, if you don't know, he, you may know him from just uh, the fiction series he did called The Chronicles of Narnia, but he wrote many books. Uh, just one of the greatest uh, Christian minds of the 20th century. But in his book, Miracles, he comments on this and talks about how this is so different to every other system of belief, this idea of a God who pursues us. Listen closely to what he says. The pantheist God does nothing, demands nothing. He is there if you wish for him, like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. The shock comes at the precise moment when the thrill of life is communicated to us along the clue we have been following. It is always shocking to meet life when we thought we were alone. And therefore, this is the very point at which many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant to come to that. Worse still, supposing he had found us. What's he saying? What's Lewis saying? He's saying that as you look across the landscape of religions, the plurality of faiths, there's none like him. There's none like the Christian God. In other religions, you, there's, the idea of personal God is a non-starter. There's just... God is an impersonal being, or the gods in streams of Eastern thought are impersonal gods. But in Christianity, the story is so much different. Now, have you ever heard the, the, the phrase, maybe you've said it before, uh, oh, well, all religions lead to God. Have you heard that before? Oh, well, all religions lead to God. Well, what's in, very interesting, if, you heard, if you've heard Abdu this weekend, uh, he, he makes a very good point. He, he says, look, that's just, not, that's just not being intellectually honest. It's a very good point. Because even when you look to a religion like Islam, and it, we have, you know, I'm sure you do, we have many 
good Muslim friends. And, you know, Abdu yesterday had this wonderful dialogue with an amazing uh, Muslim friend. He's an imam here in the city. But what's very interesting is people look to say even like a religion of Islam or others and say, well, yeah, all religions lead to God. But what's very interesting is when you compare and contrast Christianity to a religion like Islam, well, the goal of Islam is not to get to God. The goal of Islam is paradise. The question is not how do you get to God in Islam, the question is how do you get to paradise? But in Christianity, the million dollar question is indeed how do you get to God? That's what makes it so wonderful, so beautiful that actually in getting to God, God has come to us. And when you enter this path to God, are you with me? When you enter this path to God, in Christianity's terms, you see that the path has already been trod and the footprints are pointed in your direction. When you enter the path to God, in Christianity's terms, you see that the path has already been trod and those footprints that you see are pointed in your direction. God is coming after you. He pursues you. And this again is a distinguishing factor of who the Christian God is. The Christian God speaks, we see that in the person of Jesus. The Christian God pursues you, we see this again in the person of Jesus Christ. And then we also see in this story that the Christian God is personal. And this really is the fundamental, it's the foundation of how we see God pursuing us and God speaking to us. The overarching point is that, look, God, God is personal. He invites us into a relationship. Now let's go back to the story of Peter and Jesus. So Peter puts his nets out in the deep. And do you remember what happens? All of a sudden, the nets start breaking. The nets start breaking and Peter signals over to his friends. Now, please get that word signal because it's very specific in the translation. Peter does not speak, he does not shout, he does not yell. Because if you know the water, for those of you who know water, you know that I believe water, when you speak over water, it travels seven times faster than over land. And here's the thing, again, for Peter, fish meant money. And this was a financial secret to be kept. So Peter, if you can imagine Peter and his friend, they signal, they're saying, guys, get over here, we need help. He's not shouting, he's not talking, because this, he, he's making a lot of money here. Now you have to realize, this is a lottery-sized catch for Peter. This is something that he would have dreamt of. The money he would have been, been making on this one catch of fish. I imagine Peter being able to go home that day and say to his wife, honey, you want that trip to the Bahamas? We're doing the trip to the Bahamas. Kids, you want to go to Disneyland? We're doing Disneyland. This is the kind of catch of fish that Peter comes into. But what's interesting is, in a matter of moments, you see Peter go from seeing it as a financial secret to be kept to seeing it as actually, no, this is more than that. Jesus is not just some guy pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Peter, when he looks to Jesus and all that's going around him, remember, Jesus is in the boat with Peter while the boat is sinking with all this fish. Peter looks at Jesus and he says something very strange. He says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. That's very religious language for being out on the water just fishing. Why does he say that? Well, let me just pick up on one word there, Lord. 
the beginning of the story, you remember Peter looks to Jesus when he gives him instructions and he says to Jesus, look, master, we toiled all night. Well, that word master in the Greek, just to get technical here for a moment, it is ambiguous. It could be uh, master, teacher, boss. But when the story closes and Peter encounters Jesus for who he is, Peter doesn't call him the same. He doesn't use the same word there. He uses the word Lord. And that word Lord is exclusive. And I want to suggest to you that in that moment when all is happening there, when he sees all these fish coming to the nets, Peter discovers something of who Jesus is. And that's why he responds. And he's afraid because he sees something of God in Peter. You see, for Jesus, this was not about, this was not a business transaction. Jesus was a busy guy. We have to remember this. Jesus was very, I mean, he was on demand. Uh, there were many people who wanted to listen to him. They, want, they wanted him to teach them. They, want, they wanted him to do miracles. They just wanted time with Jesus. And I could easily see Jesus just saying to Peter, look, Peter, I want you to cast your nets out in the deep. And look, I've got a, I've got a 10 o'clock. And then I've got a 12 o'clock. Why don't we debrief about this at 2 o'clock? And you just let me know how this goes. That would have made total sense. I mean, if anybody ever needed an executive assistant, it was Jesus. He had a busy, busy calendar. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that to Peter. Why? Why does he not do that? Because Jesus was not interested in a business transaction. Jesus was interested in a relationship. And again, it's not because of who Peter was. It's because of who Jesus was. It's because of the love of God that poured through him. Do you know that relationship? Do you know this relationship? Now, for some of, some of you here right now, you might be thinking, so what do we do with all that? Okay, God is he's personal. He, he pursues me. He, he speaks. What are we to do with this? I want to suggest to you that actually we can take notes from what Peter does because I think his response is telling. What we see is he sees Jesus and he leaves everything and follows him. That's the response on us. That should be the response for us. The question is then, I think, which would be a good question. If you're anything like me, you might be saying, why? Why should we? Why should we follow Christ like that? Well, I think because why Peter does it. Because in that moment, Peter discovered that there is none like this. There's no one like this God. He sees the, the almightiness of Jesus in that moment, but he also sees the intimacy. And there's no one like this God. A God who speaks. A God who pursues you. Who is transcendent but also close. Let me close with a story before we enter a time of question and answers. A couple years ago in, in the summer of uh, 2016, uh, my father passed away suddenly. And uh, I was very close to my dad and uh, we were all shocked. My, I have three sisters and we were just shocked by uh, the passing of my father. And 
I still miss him immensely. I miss just having conversations with him. Uh, I miss just being with him. But approximately six months after my dad died, I remember looking, you know, just looking through the voicemails on my phone. I was scanning through the voicemails and seeing that I had a voicemail on my phone from my father. And so I played it. And when I played that message, when it ended, I hit the play button again. It ended and I hit the play button again. And I just kept doing it. I remember just being in my office there and I just kept playing this voicemail over and over and over for my father. And why did I do that? I did that because it was my dad's voice and I miss hearing my dad's voice. But it wasn't only because it was my dad's voice. It was because it was my dad's voice, but he was talking to me. And I find great, great encouragement in the fact that through the power of the resurrection of Jesus, I'll be able to see my father again. But in this space and time now, I miss my dad, and I actually won't hear his voice. As I've been giving thought to this, as that idea that that loss pertains to me as a Christian, the reality of missing my dad's voice is there. It's true, it's real. I won't hear my dad's voice. But the profundity, the wonder, the beauty of the Christian faith is that in God, in Jesus, we have this God who speaks to us. He speaks to us. Do you know this God? Do you know his voice? Do you know his pursuit, that he's come after you? He's initiated the conversation with you. Do you know this relationship? I would encourage you in this evening just to think about that for a moment. And the wonderful thing about Christianity is that it, it welcomes questions, it welcomes us, it invites us to compare and contrast this faith to other faiths. And when you do, you'll see that there is none like this God. Let me pray. Just before I pray, I just want to take a moment with everybody um, their eyes closed. And I want to just see across the room if, if there's anyone who would say, I, I want this. Um, maybe you would say, I, I am a Christian, but I want, oh, maybe I want that. I want his presence in my life. I want to hear his voice. If that's you, I just ask you to raise your hand. I'd love to pray for you, if that's you. I see, a, I see those hands. Okay. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I see those hands. Thank you. 
just going to take a moment and wait. There might be more. And this is, in a sense, we might look at this and say, well, you know, what is this? We're just raising our hands. But actually, there's something profound that happens in this because what we're doing is we're saying something to God. We're making a statement that, God, I want to have this. I want to have this relationship with you. I want to go deeper. And something serious happens. Yeah, I see that hand. A relationship with him is recovered or commenced in this moment. Any others who would say, yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm going to raise my hand. I want this. Yeah, I see that hand. I see those hands. Let me just pray for you and take a moment to pray for those of you who raise your hands. Again, there's nothing magical about this, but if, if you did raise your hands, let me just give you a roadmap type of prayer here, saying, God, I want you in my life. I'm sorry for the things that I've done that are wrong, that have separated me from you, but in this moment, I acknowledge you as God. And one who wants to be my friend, I ask that you'd come into my life. Fill me with your presence. Make me clean. God, help me to live for you. Give me your strength. Give me your courage. In Christ's name, amen.